From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Wednesday, September 5th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Coming up, how did the CIA get it wrong on Iraq and weapons of mass destruction? You know, the problem was we interpreted everything through an American lens. We should have looked at all of these episodes maybe through the Iraqi eyes. And later, the trouble with a genetically modified fish that glows? A bright lemon green color. How a glowfish could threaten native species in the wild coming up on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery, Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. He has a new relationship, a new sense of possibility, and three chilling new cases with devastating effects. Don't miss a new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. President Barack Obama is hoping to get a boost tonight from Bill Clinton. The former president is set to address the Democratic National Convention. The Obama campaign hopes he'll remind Americans of a time when a Democrat presided over a sustained period of U.S. economic growth. Bill Clinton did not have to deal, though, with a lingering economic crisis in Europe. As we've learned over the past couple of years, Europe's financial woes can have a big impact on Americans' pocketbooks, and those woes are dragging on. In the next few minutes, we'll hear about the economic challenges facing Finland and Spain. But we're going to start off today with Greece, where the government is under pressure to officially expand the work week beyond five days. The world's Clark Boyd has been covering Greece's economic woes. He traveled there several times in the past year. Tell us, Clark, about this proposal to expand the Greek work week. Well, Lisa, this is a a leaked memo that was sent to Greek ministries by um, the European Union leaders. And it basically said that one of the measures they should consider is, is doing away with this anachronistic law that said Greeks can only work five days. Absolutely only five days. Absolutely only five days straight. So there's no, you know, whereas in the rest of Europe, you might have factory workers who do eight days on, four days off. In Greece, they can't do that. You can only work five days. Okay. So is this, by the way, a mandate or a suggestion to the Greek government? It's not a mandate. It's it's a, a measure that they're suggesting as a way to make the Greek economy more uh, productive, to make it uh, to make the country more attractive to investors from outside who expect, you know, more flexible labor laws. Uh, there's nothing that says that the Greek government has to sign off on this. Okay, I know there are other measures that were proposed too, but as far as this one goes, uh, would it actually help the economy? I think people are of two minds about this. Um, on the one hand, in the in the medium term to longer term, this is just the kind of structural reform. Uh, that many think Greece needs uh, to be productive, both you know from an internal point of view and also productive in a wider European economy. 
On the other hand, uh, I, I was trading emails today with Aristotle Callas, who is a Greek political scientist. He teaches in the UK. And uh, let me just read a little bit from the email he wrote back. Uh, he said, the Greek laws are anachronistic, but he said that the timing of this proposal is nothing short of lousy. It will fan the flames of unrest, torpedo the governing coalition, enrage stakeholders, and derail Greece once and for all. I guess he doesn't like it. No, I think, <laughs> I think he actually sees, uh, like, like many, I think he sees the value in trying to push the Greeks to, to enact these kinds of reforms. But at the same time, the timing of this leak is very, very bad. Greece is... We, we say this over and over. Greece is on a knife edge again. You know, will it stay in the euro? Will it fall out of the euro? And, you know, they're sitting there waiting to find out whether they've done enough to get this next round of loans to, to, for the country to even stay solvent. Right. And for then, then to have this sort of outside force come in and keep telling them this is the way you should run your affairs, it, it grates on them. And the creditors presumably moved by the fact that, that Greece's unemployment rate stands at 30 percent. Absolutely, Lisa. So, Clark, it seems indicative of larger tensions between the Greeks and their creditors. Can you tell us what's going on? Well, I think that you're seeing with this, you know, this little brouhaha over this leaked memo and, and the idea of, well, expand the work week. You're seeing this tension rise once again between Greece wants to stay in the euro. The majority of the population feels that the euro has been a good thing for them. Um, but at the same time, they don't want any of these outside people coming in and tell them how, telling them how to run their affairs. So you've got this fundamental tension here between is Greece going to be a sovereign state and and take care of itself and you know maybe drop out of the euro go back to the drachma or is it going to remain part of the euro and you know do what Europe thinks it needs to do to to stay in the world's Clark Boyd thanks for joining us you're welcome Lisa now sometimes a country's economic fortunes are tied to a few key companies in Finland there is Nokia the telecom giant once dominated the mobile phone industry, but it has struggled lately. Its phones have been overshadowed by iPhones and Android devices. Well, today the Finnish giant unveiled two new models of smartphone in New York. But if Nokia was hoping for a quick boost, it didn't work out that way. The company's stock price took a nosedive instead. It was down 13 percent in Helsinki. Kati Polo is economics reporter for Bloomberg News in Helsinki, and she says Nokia's new phones are just not innovative enough. Well, I suppose when you look at where Nokia stands now compared with its competitors, Apple and Google's Android phones, people were expecting Nokia to leapfrog, to come up with something better than the iPhone rather than something matching it. Katia, it doesn't sound like it's a good sign at all for Nokia. A lot of angst in Helsinki over this? Well, not really. I think most people here are quite used to seeing these numbers from Nokia stock. The stock is down 70% since February 2011 when uh, Nokia and Microsoft first unveiled their collaboration. 70%? Yes. Wow. So this is just one more hit. It is one more hit. So this erosion in investor confidence is evidenced now by the fact that the last Nokia plant in Finland has closed. Yes, they are indeed closing the factory in Salo. That's about a, an hour from Helsinki on the south coast and it used to make these um, really high-end expensive phones for Nokia. And that's just one part of the 20,000 cuts that they're making globally in their workforce. You have written about how your country's economy, Finland's economy and identity are so intrinsically connected to Nokia. What would it mean if Nokia went bankrupt? Well, it would be a tremendous hit on the sort of pride that Finns feel about the company. Nokia has been for a long time the flagship of Finland around the world. 
And when Nokia job cut announcements are made, consumer confidence in Finland declines. Are there other industries that are emerging now to take the place that Nokia once had? Well, you know, those luxury cruise liners that sail in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. a lot of those are built in Finland. The world's biggest cruise liners can take in about 4,000 passengers and they have things like indoor running tracks and wall climbing and cinemas. Wow. So those are amazing on two shipyards in southern Finland. What else? Finland's also in the midst of a, a mining boom. There's a lot of Canadian and American uh, mining companies surveying the land for a possible new excavation. And, you know, the mobile game that's taking the world by storm, the Angry Birds, that's by a Finnish company that uh, has headquarters right next to Nokia. Kati Polo talking to us about Nokia. She covers the economy in Finland for Bloomberg News. Spoke to us from Helsinki. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. Tough economic times can be a challenge for incumbent politicians, just ask President Obama. In Spain, there's one local politician who's thriving during his country's ongoing crisis. His name is Juan Manuel Sanchez Gordillo. He's the mayor of a small village in southern Spain, and he's been leading marches to protest the national government's budget cuts and austerity measures. He's also been dubbed Spain's Robin Hood because he and his followers have been stealing food from supermarkets to give to the poor. The world's Jerry Haddon caught up with the movement in Andalusia. If Gordillo is Spain's Robin Hood, these people would be his merry men and women. On an early morning this week, about 250 mostly out-of-work laborers gather in a tiny whitewashed village called Casa Bermeja, 20 miles inland from Malaga. A stocky former construction worker named Jose Maria Bozuna has just arrived, walking stick in hand. He says he lost his job three years ago and lives off about $600 a month in unemployment. He and his sons have taken to scavenging the countryside, he says, for olives and beans. They keep trying to squeeze money out of us, he says, referring to a slew of government tax hikes meant to lower the deficit. But he says there's nothing left to squeeze. We don't have anything left to give. They're going to have to shoot us to shut us up, he says, as this workers' march, the fifth this summer, begins. The protesters set off down a quiet interstate, past olive orchards and pine forests. They brandish Union flags and Soviet flags, flags with Che Guevara's face on them. In terms of size, it's not the most impressive march in Spain's history. But today there are nearly as many police on hand as marchers marching. Three different forces patrol the line on motorcycles, in riot vans, a police helicopter even swoops past. Authorities aren't so worried about the marches themselves, it's the deliberate acts of civil disobedience. For example, a workers' march last month led to this raid on a supermarket. Some 50 activists filled shopping carts with food, left without paying, and distributed the items to poor families. The stunt was designed to draw attention. It worked. The march's leader, Gordillo, a communist mayor from a nearby village, was quickly dubbed Robin Hood in the press. Since then, Gordillo has gotten so much attention, he's fallen ill from exhaustion. He made only a brief appearance during this leg of the Malaga march to insist that the government should save poor people before it saves banks, and that this protest movement is nonviolent. We're hoping that social action is enough to change things, he says. That's the ideal. It's worked before, for example, in India. 
Such rhetoric has led to further comparisons, this time to Gandhi, which only makes Gordillo's movement more popular. Everywhere the marchers go, townsfolk come out to cheer them along. Along one stretch of road, an unemployed mason named Antonio Jurado, holding an infant daughter in his arms, comes out to encourage the marchers. I'm a lefty unto death, he says. The current government only helps the rich. With unemployment at 25% in Spain, many young people are turning to Gordillo, at least in Andalusia. Gordillo's ultimate goal is to see his modest marches spread nationwide. His demands seem to be resonating. As the protesters make camp for the night near a pass high above Malaga, a spokesman for the Andalusian Workers' Union, Diego Cañamera, rattles off what the movement wants. The list is long and revolutionary. A guaranteed minimum wage for everyone, he says. Public works to create jobs. The redistribution of public lands for farming. No more evictions of families who can't pay their mortgages. No more cuts in education and health care. Cañamera admits these ideas are utopian and achieving them Herculean, despite the movement's warm reception in the streets. To expose our politicians and bankers for what they are, people need to be in the street with strength and conviction, but peacefully, and hopefully we will influence the next elections. When the march arrives in Malaga Tuesday, the moment everyone's been bracing for arrives, and it's anything but peaceful. A group of protesters storm in and take over a local savings bank. Protesters outside the bank scuffle with police. One police officer is injured. A handful of marchers are arrested. It's unclear who provoked whom, but the incident illustrates the difficulties in organizing nonviolent protests. Like the U.S.'s Occupy movement, this Robin Hood rebellion has attracted all sorts of followers, from idealistic reformers to anarchists. And yesterday's temporary bank takeover also shows just how popular these marches have become. Tens of thousands of angry Malaga residents flooded streets in support of the workers, chanting, send the bankers to jail. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Malaga, Spain. Walk along with demonstrators at the long and sometimes tense workers' march. Jerry sent us some photos from the protest. They are at theworld.org. Traffic, bad air, and our geo-quiz coming up. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Our next topic, the war in Iraq. You're excused if you haven't thought of it a lot lately. Most American troops have left the country. The war stopped generating daily headlines long ago. But a recently declassified CIA document reminds us of the intelligence failure at the heart of the decision to go to war in Iraq back in 2003. The document tries to explain why the CIA got it wrong when it came to determining whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Thomas Blanton directs the National Security Archive in Washington, and he worked to get the CIA document declassified. You have called what has been released now, declassified, a remarkable CIA mea culpa. Can you tell us what is contained in it and what's so remarkable about it? Well, here you have the CIA analysts themselves looking back at years and years of intelligence reports that now, at the point they're writing this document in 2006, they know were completely wrong. Uh, 
that Saddam Hussein did not have a nuclear weapon capacity, that he did not have a chemical weapons or a bioweapons capacity. All those infrastructures, components, weapons had rotted away, rusted in the desert or been destroyed by more than a decade of inspections. And so the CIA had assured the president, the Congress and themselves that, hey, there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and they're an imminent threat. No such thing. Here, for the first time, we have the agency itself looking at its own navel and saying, you know, the problem was we interpreted everything through an American lens. We should have looked at all of these episodes maybe through Iraqi eyes. And it raises those much bigger questions today. Is the CIA doing any better a job looking at the Iranian nuclear program through Iranian eyes or through the multiple <laughs> Iranian positions or North Korea for that matter. So that's what makes this document really astounding is both the mea culpa, it's our failure, but also what it says about the inherent problems of trying to figure out what an enemy is up to and the gulf between where we sit and where they sit. But there were, as the document states, there were inspectors who were on the ground there. Is is the document saying that the administration did not listen to them or that the inspectors themselves came to the wrong conclusions? You have to read between the lines because if you put this document together with what the inspectors were saying, remember the inspectors in 2002 and 2000, early 2003 were saying, give us four, five, six more months. We've gone to every site that you guys, you Americans have told us there's there's weapons there and we haven't found anything. So let us keep going and we'll prove a negative, which is pretty hard to do. So the document doesn't speak to the whether the inspectors were right what it speaks to is the failure of the analysts back in Washington, back at Langley, back in the U.S. intelligence community to figure out that the Iraqi reaction to these inspections, yes, it was deceptive, but it wasn't deceptive because they were covering up their weapons. It was deceptive because they were trying to protect their regime. It's tough to think that the CIA, given the stakes in that period, wouldn't have looked at the lay of the land through Iraqi eyes. Or maybe it's not so tough. One would think that it would be lessons learned in uh, Inspections 101 or Diplomacy well, that's 101. That's exactly the, the question here. Did the CIA learn these lessons? Are we doing it any better today? When we go back and look at the weapons of mass destruction intelligence, the single summary document was this estimate that the CIA put together, but it was on behalf of all the other intelligence agencies. And it has a whole bunch of little footnote dissents where the you know Air Force says the unmanned vehicles couldn't really deliver any bioweapons. And the State Department says, well, that yellow cake isn't really for uranium enrichment. And another agency says, wait a second, those uh, aluminum tubes, they really weren't for uranium. They were for rockets. And it turns out all the dissents were right. But no one agency and no one analyst dissented on everything. So it's a lesson for us to be contrarian. And when you get a chunk of received wisdom from the powers that be or conventional wisdom, probably our obligation as citizens and certainly the CIA's obligation as intelligence analysts is to, as in the words of the old bumper sticker, question authority. 
All right. Thank you very much for talking to us about this declassified report. Thomas Blanton directs the National Security Archive at George Washington University. The declassified CAA document he's talking about is called Misreading Intentions, Iraq's Reactions to Inspections, Created Picture of Deception. It's been published for the first time in foreignpolicy.com. For a link, visit us at theworld.org. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Lisa. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, a Chinese city cracks down on cars. Also, dancing underwater in a wheelchair. The artist says it feels like flying. I can loop the loop and pull curves and swerves and barrel rolls. When the chair's perfectly balanced, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Several sports at the Paralympic Games in London involve a wheelchair. Today alone, athletes in wheelchairs competed in basketball, fencing, rugby, and tennis at the Games. Performance artist Sue Austin uses a wheelchair, and what she does with it is breathtaking. You can see for yourself. We've posted a video at theworld.org. Austin uses a specially equipped wheelchair and breathing gear, and she glides underwater in a graceful solo ballet. She's performing this show as part of the Cultural Olympiad celebrations in London. Sue Austin says that the inspiration for her performance came to her on her first scuba dive in Egypt several years ago. When I started diving, I became really aware that the associations attached to scuba gear are ones of excitement and adventure and freedom, and that they extended your range of activity in the world, just like my power chair did. But the associations attached to my power chair, when I asked people for the first words that came to mind, were ones of fear, limitation, pity, restriction, illness, and so on. And through my arts practice, I came to realise I'd internalised those ideas and it had changed my identity. And I couldn't quite work out what had happened until I made this connection. And I started making artwork that was about using the wheelchair as an object to literally paint or play or have fun with. And so when I realised that scuba gear extended your range of activity in the same way, I thought, hmm, I wonder what will happen if I put scuba gear and an NHS wheelchair together. And NHS is the National Health Service in in Britain. So it's the sort of um, very basic chair that people get if they're not able to afford one themselves. So the the wheelchair itself is all kitted out for underwater mobility, but it doesn't really look it. Can you, can you describe what's different about the underwater wheelchair? We attach these dive propulsion vehicles under the chair, but to stabilize the chair, we needed to create um, fins. We call them hydroplanes that attach to the foot plates, which we've simply swapped over. So instead of hinging at the side, they hinge behind the heel. So they're kind of clear fins, and you are slightly able to move your feet, and that makes a difference underwater. 
Yes, absolutely. I have some mobility. The buttons from the dive propulsion vehicles come up the side of the chair and I press them with the side of my legs so that my hands are free to be expressive, to create the feeling of that gentle exploration and interaction with the underwater world. And and your hair does look amazing. Um, Thank I, you. It's long, dark hair, and it looks like kind of like some kind of anemone when you're propelling yourself, and it's 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 um, kind of floating up above. How fast can you go in the wheelchair? We're not quite sure of the speed, but other divers get exhausted trying to keep up with me. <laughs> it's the most amazing sense of freedom. There is, I have to say, there is nothing else that I have done in life that quite compares to it. Um, I think the only thing that would compare would be if you were an acrobatic pilot. So because I can loop the loop and pull curves and swerves and barrel rolls in the water when the chair's perfectly balanced. Uh, There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. It's quite incredible. I don't know. Would it ever be considered an equalizer, having a a chair that propels itself, these drive propulsion vehicles underwater? Yes. It's it's really strange. Um, A friend... um, guy who saw the footage over my shoulder when I was at University of Plymouth and his quote was that now when he sees someone in a wheelchair he won't wonder what they can't do he won't even think what they can do now he'll be thinking what they can do that he can't do and he talked about the project making wheelchairs an underwater wheelchair an aspirational object so if it has, it's certainly achieved what I hope to achieve through the artwork, which is this process of transforming preconceptions through creating unexpected images that then act to excite and inspire people. Because it's about transforming preconceptions, all of you become part of the artwork. As soon as you have the idea in your mind, you become part of creating the spectacle too. Sue Austin, a multimedia and performance artist based in North Devon, England. Her performance in an underwater wheelchair was part of the Unlimited Festival presented in London this week alongside the Paralympics. Good luck. Continue to have fun and uh, make great art, Sue. Thank you. Again, take a couple of minutes and treat yourself to a fascinating video of Sue Austin's underwater ballet in a wheelchair. It's at theworld.org. Now, follow the Pearl River to today's GeoQuiz. Chinese megacity on the Pearl River is on our radar today. 12 million people live there, 40 million in the surrounding region. Some major automotive assembly plants are there too, including several serving Honda and Toyota. Cars and trucks are at the heart of the city's economy, but they're also major contributors to gridlock and pollution. So this summertime, city officials launched a plan to cut the number of cars on the streets by half. Where on the Pearl River is this auto revolution happening? The answer's coming up. If you have an aquarium at home, you know just how cool it looks when you have something in the water that glows in the dark. It's even better when what's glowing in the dark is a fish. That's why a Texas-based company called Yorktown Technologies has created a line of genetically modified fluorescent fish. 
These glowfish have been around for a few years now, but there is concern that one of the company's fish, the electric green tetra, could pose a serious environmental threat. Environmentalists worry that if one of the fluorescent tetras is ever released into the wild, it could threaten native fish species in Florida and elsewhere. Science journalist Adrian Appel has written an article about this new glowfish in the Washington Post. Adrian, first of all, this is the first genetically modified pet. Is that right? Yes, the glowfish. What color do they glow? A bright lemon green color. Sounds lovely. <laughs> How do they get that? I mean, can you explain how the fish are bred to glow this bright lemon green? They've taken a gene from a fluorescent coral and inserted it in the DNA of what's called a black tetrafish, mm -hmm. which is a fish native to South America. They're cute and look stunning, but why would a fish like this have to be genetically modified when there are so many beautiful fish you see in aquariums anyway? The aquarium fish industry in Florida alone brings in $70 million a year. Huh. And throughout the world, it's a big industry, multi-billion dollar. And the black tetrafish, which is the base fish, is an aquarium fish on the market right now. It sells for $3. But the modified black tetrafish, the glowfish, sells for about 11 or $12 Holy each. smokes. And that's if you get just one. Yes. And most people... Most people will get a few, uh -huh. at least. So you can see them school. Yes, exactly. So what is the concern that environmentalists have? Environmentalists say we, we don't really know what would happen if the fish, which inevitably they will be, eaten by larger fish. This, could, this is for people, pet owners, who, who say, okay, who, enough of the aquarium, and they, they toss the fish down the toilet, which is what happens. Yes. Typically, they toss them into uh, fresh water in Florida, and that's why there are now more than 25 species, non-native freshwater fish species that live and thrive in Florida. So if this fish were eaten by larger fish, we don't know if it might harm the larger fish or somehow upset the ecosystem. If the larger fish likes this new little fish, maybe it will stop eating other fish. And what happens if it breeds with another fish? If a glowfish, black tetrafish, were to reproduce with a black tetra, some of the offspring would have the glowing gene uh, from multiple generations. Uh -huh. Eventually, it would be bred out. But according to the company, the gene would be passed on from multiple generations. One of the concerns of environmentalists is that it could be a kind of aesthetic pollution that imagine yourself in Florida, you're enjoying yourself out on a boat, on a canal, and maybe doing some fishing or looking down the water and you see a bright, bright glowing fish, unnaturally glowing fish, and it's the glowfish. You know, some people would say, great, it's the glowfish. But others, others look askance and say what? They would say, this is pollution in my environment. Uh -huh, because it's not natural? Yes. So we should say that genetically modified fish are not widely accepted as being safe, uh, certainly not in other countries where they've been introduced. No, they're banned in Canada, and mm -hmm. European Union nations ban genetically modified animals. On what grounds? They take what's called the precautionary principle, that we don't know what may happen once a genetically modified animal is released into the wild. And that's a 
concern is that these will inevitably be released into the wild. Adrian Appel's article about the newest genetically modified glowfish, as beautiful as it is controversial, is on our website, theworld.org. You can also watch the glowfish glow on a video we're presenting too. Adrian Appel, thank you. Thank you very much. Back now to the southern Chinese city we mentioned earlier in our GeoQuiz today. It's a place where officials want to cut in half the number of cars out on the streets. New York Times reporter Keith Bradshaw has been writing about efforts to limit the number of new cars in Chinese cities, including the one we asked you about in today's quiz. Guangzhou has considerable uh, traffic jams. By Chinese standards, they're not even some of the worst traffic jams. You can spend half an hour sitting in in traffic. Still, they've become a uh, nuisance that people talk about in Guangzhou. And so the municipal government decided this summer to take decisive action. With just three hours' notice, they said they weren't going to register any new cars for a month. And then when they did resume registrations, they have done so now through a system of lotteries, and auctions of license plates that cuts in half the number of new cars that can be registered. And what's the ultimate goal? Is it to reduce traffic or reduce pollution, which we hear so much about in uh, China? The number one goal is to reduce traffic jams, but a definite second goal is to reduce air pollution. Their calculation is that roughly two-fifths of the air pollution in Guangzhou comes from vehicles. And so they had enough concern about that that they decided they really were going to cut back on the number of new cars. So what's the reaction? The the strongest reaction has been from people who are about to buy a car and suddenly find that it's going to be a little more complicated to buy a car than they had expected. The number of cars on the road in Guangzhou has been rising about 20% a year. Now, that is a very fast pace. In the United States, it only rises a couple of percent a year and lately not even that. So the the traffic jams have been getting worse. They've tried to stay ahead of it through building a lot of new roads, an extensive more than 120-station subway system, but none of that has really worked. And so they decided to, to take the more drastic measure of severely restricting the number of new license plates. I spoke to a couple, and they said uh, that uh, the husband had to finally, after a year, managed to get a driver's license, something that now involves five different visits to the motor vehicle department and a series of different tests in Guangzhou. So he finally got the driver's license. Now they weren't sure whether they'd be able to get a new car. They didn't know if they'd win a license plate through the lottery, and they didn't really want to have to pay potentially into the thousands of dollars for a license plate through an auction. Was there and is there a concern now for Guangzhou that there will be fewer cars sold, maybe less revenue coming in in terms of license fees, therefore a knock-on effect on the economy? Guangzhou is a big, big manufacturing city. We're talking a city with roughly the population of New York City, including the New York City suburbs. The auto industry is important for it. The city leaders of Guangzhou thought a lot about it because they said, yes, this will affect auto sales, and yes, this will affect auto production, and yes, there will be a little bit of an effect on the economy at a time when the economy is already showing considerable weakness in China. But they decided that the that the benefits, reduced traffic jams, and improved air quality were worth making that sacrifice. And that's part of a new and very interesting trend that you're seeing really just in the past 12 months or so in China. City leaders used to be foot draggers when it came to doing almost anything at all about pollution in particular, and even on traffic, they were a little leery of doing anything that might slow growth. But you find a new attitude among a growing number of city leaders in China in which they're so worried about being the targets 
of further environmental protests of the sort we've already seen in all over the country, really, in, in China. They're so worried about that that they're now really starting to take the initiative and trying to do things to improve the environment in their own cities even before they face large protests. In some cases, as in Guangzhou, they're even going ahead of where the national government was was immediately planning to go. Were you ever caught in one of these massive traffic jams in Guangzhou? No. I ride the subway. and I've been to Guangzhou enough times, it's only uh, several hours from Hong Kong by train, that I wouldn't be reckless enough to go get caught in one of these and sit forever. So I, uh, the, the, the subway system is really, is really quite good. But there are a lot of people who just think, oh, I've got my fancy new car and I want to drive it no matter what, and they just go and sit in these silly traffic jams. Keith Bradshaw is the Hong Kong bureau chief for the New York Times. We'll make a link to his story about Guangzhou and the efforts there to reduce traffic gridlock and air pollution. He wrote it for the New York Times. You can find the link at theworld.org. And Guangzhou is the answer to our geo-quiz. Nice to speak with you, Keith. Thank you. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the investment firm of Raymond James, Wealth Management, Bank, and Capital Markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Back in 2009, riots erupted in China's northwestern province of Xinjiang. The Chinese government responded. It cracked down hard on the province's Uyghurs. They're a Turkic Muslim minority. Very few in the international community came to the Uyghurs' defense. But Turkey did. The Turkish prime minister called China's actions a kind of genocide. Since then, relations between the two nations have improved. But China still has an image problem in Turkey. This week in Istanbul, Beijing is hoping to improve that, too, with an exhibition of Islamic culture in China. Matthew Brunwasser reports. Muslims in China make up less than 2% of the population, but that's still 23 million people, almost the population of Texas. And Zhang Zian from the Chinese state religious body says the exhibition is meant to inform international audiences about the richness of Islamic culture in China. To know more about the, how the Chinese Muslims live their lives in China and uh, how, they, how they live their religious life. There's a lot of rumors, he says, that the Chinese government prevents Muslim men from wearing beards, for example, or that it stops women from covering their heads. It's not true, he says. Muslims live freely in China, and the exhibits are proof of this reality. The reason we hold such kind of activity to know what really happened in China. The exhibition features traditional songs and dances by two Muslim performing groups. These Uyghur dancers are dressed in intensely colorful costumes as they perform tightly choreographed songs and dances. Unlike the music in the rosy picture painted by the government official, life for Uyghurs in China isn't especially joyful. I don't want to speak Chinese. I talked to a Uyghur emigre at the performance who didn't want to use her name, fearing reprisals against her family in Xinjiang. She says the Chinese government is trying to wipe out the Uyghur language. I'm afraid about the future. Uyghur language, everyone is forget this Uyghur language because... Every place is all Chinese. The woman says the Chinese government is trying to assimilate Uyghurs by force, eliminating Uyghur language education and giving economic opportunities only to the majority ethnic Han Chinese. Human Rights Watch concurs. A recent report said 
under the guise of counterterrorism and anti-separatism efforts, the government maintains a pervasive system of ethnic discrimination against Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. Perhaps more than anywhere else in the world, in Turkey, the people in government are sensitive to Uyghur pleas. Hugh Pope is a Turkey analyst and author of Sons of the Conquerors: The Rise of the Turkic World. Every Turkish schoolchild is taught that the Uyghurs are brothers. Eight million people who are under Chinese sovereignty in Xinjiang, or as it used to be known, East Turkestan, still in the Turkish consciousness as being a Turkic people, blood brothers according to the state ideology of the Turkish Republic. China hopes that cultural exchanges like the one happening now will help ease Turks' reservations about Muslims in China, but Pope says PR is probably not even needed. You know, when money comes into play, then, uh, and that's at the state level as well. Um, I, I think that these these cultural phenomena are are simply used to dress up the relationship with friendship. Pope says China's economic power will always move Turkey more than the human rights of their Uyghur brothers. Most people are interested in buying Chinese products. Turkish companies are building things in Chinese cities, just like everyone else in the world. We've seen even the beginnings of a military relationship. Chinese Chinese airplanes coming two years ago to fly here. Turkish leaders do go and visit Xinjiang. They dress themselves up in the Uyghur national dress, and China is very happy with that because it shows that everything's all right. Turkey is a rising regional power, but it's still a medium-sized developing country. It's not in Turkey's interest to have trouble with China, says Pope. What's more, most of the Uyghurs' ancient cities have already been razed to make way for new cities, likely to be dominated by majority ethnic Han Chinese. For the world, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. And we end today's program with some music from one of China's Muslim minorities. The world's language editor Patrick Cox is here to tell us about it. Patrick, what are we listening to now? This is a song that's by quite a popular singer in China. Her name is Ha Hui. She's she's Muslim. In fact, her surname Ha is thought to be the Chinese version of the Arabic name Hassan. And she is a member Ha Hui. She is a member of the Hui Muslim minority. And you don't hear so much about the Hui as you do about the Uyghurs,、uh, even though the Hui are the largest Muslim group in China. Right. We hear a lot about the Uyghurs in, in far western China. What about the Hui people? Who are they? Well, the way the Hui are defined is a little bit catch-all. They they represent several ethnicities, but what binds them together is that. They're the most integrated with the majority Han Chinese in, in just about every respect, politically, culturally, and linguistically. Most of them speak Chinese, unlike the Uyghurs, for example, who have their own mother tongue. And Hawei, this singer, just like some of the artists that we've heard about in the previous report, she performed in the Greater Muslim World in Turkey, in Egypt, and also here in the U.S. and interestingly in Israel too. Just as I.
You can hear in this song in particular that the music and she herself seems to be drawing on Chinese traditions and Muslim traditions. You can hear a bit of both. Yeah, and that's in a lot of Hui music. It's certainly not threatening to Beijing either. In fact, it's quite celebrated. And this goes beyond music. We, we have in the latest World in Words podcast a conversation about an internationally renowned calligrapher. He's a man by the name of Haji Nordin. He uh, is also Hui, and he uses this script that fuses two of the world's greatest calligraphy traditions. That's Chinese and Arabic. And his work is quite something to see. And indeed, you can see some of Haji Nordin's calligraphy at theworld.org. While you're there, you can hear Patrick Cox's World in Words conversation with reporter Angela Sun about Haji Nordin in the latest World in Words podcast. Thanks, Patrick. You're welcome, Lisa. The music of Hawkway brings our program to a close. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks a lot for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International